Welcome to episode seven of Recovering. Our guest is television journalist Patrick Gower. Patrick began his journalism career in print before stepping into television, eventually becoming News Hub's political editor for six years, and then national correspondent for the past four. Patrick has decided to talk with Reverend Frank Ritchie today about his coverage of people affected by the genetic disorder cystic fibrosis and the life-saving drug that remains just out of reach for so many. I'm Petra Bagist from Media Chaplaincy New Zealand. Throughout this series, broadcaster and media chaplain Reverend Frank Ritchie is joined by leading New Zealand journalists to unpack the one story from their career which has impacted them the most, personally and professionally. Here's Frank sitting down with Paddy Gower. So, Patty, thank you so much for taking some time. We've kind of been dancing around this for a little while now. We had kind of talked about doing it before the last lockdown kicked in, lockdown kicked in, and we're finally here. I really appreciate it. No, I appreciate the chance too, Frank. It's, it's really good to be here, finally. <laughs> now, you've got a career that spans a good chunk of time now. You started out uh, studying first politics, then journalism. Was it always the plan to do to study politics and journalism, or did you go in doing one and then jump over... Yeah, I mean, it was really not a plan at all. The only reason I kind of ended up in journalism was because I couldn't think of any other job to do uh, once I had my Bachelor of Arts with honours in politics. And I'd just gone to university because my parents were desperate for someone in our family to go to university. I was the first to go there. Um, I ended up doing a Bachelor of Arts, didn't know what to do. I ended up doing an honours year, didn't know what to do. And then journalism was something that I could kind of see, yeah, that that might be all right. So after five years, I kind of emerged as a journalist, but there was definitely no plan to later on become a political journalist or or anything like that. I've just sort of fopped from one place to another and ended up ended up here. <laughs> and a lot of people's, uh, I think, probably perception of you would have developed strongly when you hit our TV screens, diving into political journalism, being in the gallery at Parliament. But before that, police journalism, particularly with the Herald, we had Jared Savage on and he quickly acknowledged at one point that he had kind of taken over from you at the Herald when it came to reporting on the police. Yeah, and no, I, I mean, I'd taken over from from guys like Tony Wall and even further back Tim Murphy, people who are still around, and you know the police round, the police beat uh, at the Herald is a, it's a, it's an institution and in, in, within an institution really, and uh, reporting on crime in Auckland and and all over the country, and you know that was one of my early jobs, and and you know that was about as far from politics as you could ever get, and people who remember me from those days will will know that I I, I loved that job. Um, it's just that people didn't see me on TV doing it or anything anything like that. The people who work with me could not believe that sort of police reporter, scruffy kind of guy used to sort of being out on the street wearing at the shoe leather could actually end up in Parliament doing that kind of thing. When I went there, people couldn't believe it and didn't think I would uh, go anywhere in Parliament because they couldn't see how, how that guy could be transplanted down there. So it's been a, a career with lots of twists and turns and 21, 22 years in, you know, it's still going. It's awesome. Mm, well, clearly, you must have seen something then or someone else saw something to get you down in Parliament if nobody else could see it. How did how did that transition work then? Audrey Young did, until recently, the political editor of of the New Zealand Herald and, and, and one of the greatest political journalists of all time in this country, in my view. She had seen, you know, maybe we can get this kind of guy in here and, and he could do well. And she gave me a chance 
and I never looked back um, in terms of politics, and it and it led me into television and, and all sorts of things. So, yeah, to all those politicians, it's Audrey's fault. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I remember your exit from the Parliamentary Gallery, though, and I remember it being relatively emotional. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a place where you invest. Any journalist in the Parliamentary Gallery is investing so much time, so much energy, is always on, always available, because politics can happen at any time. The story can break it at any time. You're connected to people people in relatively intimate ways, uh, you're leading the stories of the nation because so much is driven by parliament. Why leave? Look, it just wasn't for me. You know, in the end, the stress actually gave me a, a, a breakdown. I couldn't handle that job after 10 years. You know, looking back, uh, I'd kind of gone into fill in for three months and I, and I didn't leave for 10 years. Uh, I say to people, a life sentence for murder in Paremaremo is, is 10 years um, until you get parole, and that's what I did in Parliament, you know, and it sort of feels like that to me. Looking back, it wasn't really my personality, even though I love politics and I love some of the drama and, and, you know, I got right into it. I never sort of looked to see whether this was really what I wanted to be doing in my life or anything like that. I just rode the wave, and by the end of it, I realised that it just wasn't something, it wasn't a wave that I wanted to be on. And, you know, maybe it wasn't a wave that I should ever have got on, which is, you know, when you're talking about 10 years of your life, it's a long time. But for me, you know, I loved aspects of it and I got really into it. But but looking back now, you know, maybe that place wasn't for me and, and I definitely couldn't handle it. And in the end, you know, I, I had to bail out of there and I wasn't in particularly good nick. But thankfully, I got back into journalism again and got going again and, and got up again. So... Yeah. Feel free to skirt this if you want. <laughs> but I'd, li- I'd love it if you're open to it to explore what that breakdown looked like for you. And I'm keen partly because in what I do in the background, uh, I encounter young journalists especially who are starting to hit that wall. And to hear from those who have kind of gone, been there, done that, I think it can be really important. So if you don't mind me asking, again, Mm. feel free to say no, but if you don't mind me asking, what did breakdown look like for you? I just remember sitting in bed one night um, over at APEC, um, Jacinda Ardern had just become Prime Minister and the pressure was just, you know, building. And um, I just remember thinking, you know what, I I don't want to do another election here, you know, I can't do this for another three years. Mm. And then I sort of thought, you know, I can't go back to New Zealand. I don't reckon I can do another year or anything like that. And then, uh, as people will will know, when your mind is starts starts going, and then I was just like, you know, what I I, I don't reckon I can get to Christmas because it was like November. And then I was just like, hey, I I can't. I, I don't reckon I can do another week. And then bearing in mind that I was in Da Nang in, in Vietnam, um, uh, then got to, you know, I can't actually go out tomorrow and, and do this. And we're halfway through APEC. I mean, I kind of had to. Mm. But I remember looking to see how much a taxi um, would cost to get me to Ho Chi Minh City, which is, you know, hundreds of dollars, and get on an Air New Zealand flight there and just get out of there and say that I was sick or something and couldn't complete the trip and get home. Like, I was kind of at that point. You know, I managed to get together and... And, and do the last couple of stories and I knew that I had finished inside me. I was just like, right, I'm just, that's it. And, 
you know, I found it really difficult because people couldn't understand what, why I was giving that up. You know, when I came back and started telling people, people were really, really confused and quite, quite worried um, at what I, you know, and what I was saying and what I wanted to go and do and stuff like that. So, you know, in terms of what it what it looked like, I mean, you know, if you're just sort of shutting off, you know, if you're just enabled to to cope with the job that you do all of a sudden yeah like it, everything had just piled up that I just actually just couldn't cope and I actually couldn't do what I what what I do I couldn't actually do what I do that's what it looked like mm. and that was that and yeah I just just bailed out it was over mm. that's a that's a significant little break not a little break that's a, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, a yeah. that's a solid break how did you how did you mend then because I mean, clearly, you're, from where I'm looking, you're loving what you're doing now, and there's a vibrance about what you're doing. How did you come back? You know, I, I'd always loved journalism, right? And uh, I'd sort of parked a lot of journalism to go into politics. You know, politics is a certain kind of journalism, there's a certain style of things and stuff like that. And you don't, you don't get out to be with people. You know, you're with politicians they're people too of course um, <laughs> sometimes but you know you don't get out to be with people and and I'd never done television outside of there and I I, I really did enjoy working with pitches and, and and stuff like that and and I'd previously been an investigative journalist and, and as we've said a police journalist and and I knew that if I could kind of combine the good bits of the television with the good bits of of what I'd been doing before and try to uh, build a new kind of journalism for myself where people were at the heart of it where humans were at the heart of it and connect with people, use my skills and personality to connect with people and enjoy my work again, that, 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 that I'd be fine and, and get a few scoops and, and do some different things. And I knew that I'd be fine. And that, that was the case, connecting with people and uh, getting a few good yarns and, and, and learning how to use television in a, in a different way than, than the way I'd been using it in Parliament. Was, that was the saving of me, connecting with people again mm. through journalism. It sounds, to people it might sound self-evident, put people at the heart of journalism, but there's a temptation to want to break the stories and lead the headlines and do the stuff that's going to be shown worldwide and politics, politics offers uh, some of that stuff. Why, why put people at the centre rather than just looking to crack the salacious headline? Yeah, I mean, I kind of like to think that sometimes I can do both. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I I don't know. I've just I I really do get a buzz from working with people. I like connecting with people. It's awesome that in journalism you get to do that. It's not work to my mind to go and see people and and chat to them and find out about them and if you can try to help them. And yeah, I just thought it was just a way that I could use everything I'd learnt and do something for people at the same time and and feel good about life and and have some fun. Yeah, I just think people are at the heart of everything and that's journalism and even in politics it's actually about it's not about the politicians or the politics it's about the people that vote for them you know people are there as well it's just it's not as easy to not as easy to show sometimes as 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 what I'm as what I'm doing now where I can actually get out and and, and be with them. You're speaking my language. Putting my minister hat on for a second, there's a little bit of your background that intrigues me and just lights me up a little because I can see a, a million and one connections. Catholic upbringing, yeah. uh, Catholic school. How much has that, and I know people see the bad headlines about Catholics, but how much has that influenced what you do now? Yeah, I had a Catholic upbringing. 
Um, I was born and raised a Catholic and, and, and educated in Catholic schools by the De La Salle brothers at Francis Douglas Memorial College in New Plymouth. I don't practice as a Catholic anymore, except on I, I do like to go on Christmas and remember my mother, who was who was a Catholic, and and remember a lot about what what Catholicism had done for me. But yeah, I disagree with heaps of stuff in the Catholic Church. You know, I don't agree with anything about abortion, or I hate what's happened with with child abuse and abuse and all of these things. But and the De La Salle brothers will probably be lighting up at the moment, especially the ones who taught me, because they won't believe that anything that they ever tried to teach me got through. <laughs> but, you know, if you strip away all of that stuff and, and you look at, at, at what's been drummed into you in a Catholic upbringing, Catholicism's values are love, freedom, truth, justice. Take the word Catholic off the top of love, freedom, truth, and justice. Put journalism, love, Freedom, truth, justice. The values are actually the same, you know. I mean, if you're doing journalism, you'd probably start with, with truth. You know, it's always got to be about the truth. It's Justice is a big part of what we do, um, getting justice for people. Freedom, we need freedom uh, as freedom of the press. And, you know, love should be in anything you do, whether you're religious or have faith or, or, or don't. And those values, and which are literally drummed into you uh, as any Catholic who's watching this will know, you know, they do get through. And human dignity as well. Catholicism is big on human dignity. Every every human is entitled to dignity. It doesn't matter who they are, where they are, what where they come from, what they do. And that's a core journalistic value of mine as well, is that every human is 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 allowed their dignity. Mm. So those values, those base those base values, undoubtedly, because until I was able to kind of make my own <laughs> decisions in life, they were kind of drummed into me. And they're, of course, going to be part of your life. You don't have to be a practicing Catholic to leave all the, all the stuff that you don't like to one side and take the good bits. And, and I guess that's what, I've, that's what I've done in my journalism or I'm trying to do now. Yeah. I think we can probably throw the word advocacy into the journalism then, that, yeah. that justice element. What I find interesting when you see people's complaints about the media at the moment is they talk about wanting the media just to give the facts. But I think when you press most people, that's not all they want from the media. Where When they get annoyed at the media, it's because they've got a vision of what they think is good and right, and they want the media to be advocating for that vision of good yeah. and right. And often they feel like for them that might not align. Yeah, And I see this with your work specifically is this strong sense of advocacy. So it's not just sharing the fact, it's sharing the facts, it's sharing the truth with a sense that change could happen. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I get to work on really specific topics, you know, when you're in parliament and you're working across everything, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard, you know, you can't advocate all the time or it's very difficult to, you kind of, you do have to put things a lot more to one side and become a lot more mercenary in your in your search for the facts and hunt the facts. You know, I think that, that works there. And, but, you know, a lot of political reporters have a social conscience as well and you can see that that, that that can come through. And what I can do now is I can focus on pretty specific things where, you know, I'm not getting too much out into the politics of them or anything like that. I'm able to just really kind of go in and shine a light on some quite specific areas. So I, I think advocacy in those is a lot easier. You're not sort of 
departing too much where, where bias or something can come through. You're on a very sort of specific kind of path. You know, you're not advocating for some giant policy change rooted in your own political philosophy. You're just like looking at someone and you're saying, what is happening to that person is fundamentally not right. And if people see this, they will know that and some change will come for that person or that group of people or whatever. That is where advocacy can work in journalism. That's where I sort of use it and that's and that's how it works. It's just like that person does not have the dignity that they should have in life. That person does not have the justice that they should have in life. I want to help that person by showing others what's going on and I think that once that happens that we might be able to change some stuff for them. Which brings us to the story. Cystic fibrosis in New Zealand and the the specifically three stories towards the start of last year, looking at three people who are dealing with cystic fibrosis. And I watched the first one about Bella. And we've done, you're the seventh of the episodes of this uh, podcast so far. And looking at the stories that I've discussed with the others, there are some that have shocked me. Uh, I've been moved. I've been angered. None of them have brought me to tears yet. You know, I was watching the story of Bella yesterday, and I don't know if it, if it's you, there's something in the way that you deliver the drama, which I think is fabulous. It really gets across the seriousness of it. But Bella's story, at 15 years old, was told that she didn't have too long, uh, could have uh, died towards the end of 2020, I think it was, gets her hands on Trikafta yeah. uh, from Vertex, the company that makes it, Life has turned around and months later is looking just like any other teenage girl. But I watched that story and I had tears in my eyes because I'm like, if you hadn't done what you'd done and her plight had not been put on the table and Sir Bobby Elliott had not come along and invested $100,000 so she could have a few months of the drug, she would have been dead. She would have been a wonderful young lady taken. How did you get onto this story? An email came into my inbox and it was written, you know, there weren't a lot of caps and different things, which is always a bit of concern when you get an email from someone. (laughs) (laughs) But it said something along the lines of, hi, my name is Sir Bob Elliott. I'm a medical researcher and I've spent my life trying to find a cure for cystic fibrosis. I haven't been able to do it, but there is now... Uh, this drug out there that has miraculous results and a young girl from the North Shore is is using it and I want to try and get some media coverage. And if anyone who knows me will know that I'm really disorganised, I'm terrible at emails, and I have to say that I actually forgot about the email. I kind of looked at it and oh, that looks interesting, Sir Bob Elliott. I know who he is, amazing medical researcher, and I nearly forgot about it. And then a couple of days later, something said to me, oh, you know, who, what, where was that email? And I got it and I, and I rung him and he said, oh, I was trying to give me his credentials. I said, you don't need to give me your credentials. You know, this is an amazing medical researcher. And he said, yeah, there's this drug and, and I've, I've given $100,000 to this girl and this is her mum's number and, and it's having amazing results. And I rang her mum and her mum said, thank you for calling. It's a miracle. I'm looking at a miracle. I can see her now. And and said, Bob, you know, it's amazing he's doing this while he's sick, which hadn't mentioned to me. Mm. She said, he's really, really sick. 
So then I rang him back, and in classic journalistic fashion, I was like, yeah, I'm pretty keen to interview you. And he's like, when? And I was like, tomorrow. I can do tomorrow. I'm busy next week. And, and I hadn't had a yarn for a while, and I was pretty desperate for a yarn, and it was a good one. That's the base motivation. There wasn't anything huge. I just was lacking a good yarn. And he sort of said, I'm really crook. And I said, I heard. And I said, do you want to ask your, your wife if I can come up tomorrow? And he said to me, if I ask her, she'll say no. I'll see you in the morning. <laughs> and, and I went and saw him in the morning. And he said to me, when I came in, he says he said something along the lines of, I'm on my way out. And I was like, Phew. And um, we set everything up for the, for the interview and beautiful lounge and beautiful home. And the sun was shining in, in the window. And anyone who's seen someone uh, with a terminal illness will know you don't know if you're going to get them on a good day or a bad day or what have you and I got this guy on a good day Mm. we set up the camera and he did the most brilliant interview where he said that it was a miracle drug he'd spent his life trying to find a cure and he hadn't been able to do it but this American drug company had done it and what they'd done was amazing he'd wished he'd thought of it himself but it was there now that he knew Bella on the North Shore she was going to die he'd been her doctor, and that he had spent $100,000 of his own money to get her the drug to live for a little bit longer, but he wanted to get some attention for it as well. And this is what I loved. He clearly watched TV One, being an older guy. He did not know who I was (laughs) and said that um, he'd been having these conversations with his reverend who had recommended, said, oh, you should try and get a hold of this guy. Yeah. And so whoever that guy is, I owe a favour as well. He said, yeah, I've been having these conversations about death and your name came up as someone who might do a good job of the story. And I'd been Googling and looking at this drug as well and I just knew instantly that this thing was real. You know, and when you've got someone of Sir Bob Elliott's stature saying to you, this is it, it's there, the drug company are unethical for charging such a high price. You know, it's half a million dollars a year or something like that. Let's just drive that home for a moment. So to keep someone like uh, Bella alive and the two others that you interviewed, I mean, I was watching the, the story with Isaiah and you see Isaiah just sucking in air because for those who aren't familiar with it, cystic fibrosis just fills your lungs with mucus and fluid. But in order for someone to take it just to stay alive, we're talking uh, between four and $500 a pill and we're talking uh, between four hundred and thirty and $500,000 a year to keep someone yeah, at alive. That, at that time, that's what it was. And I'll be honest, I didn't actually know what cystic fibrosis was. I've got a pretty big general knowledge and I kind of had it confused with spina bifida or I didn't actually really know what it was. And so it was a, a real learning experience for me as well about the suffering People are born with it. They don't choose it. It's just a genetic thing that just strikes. And you find out that your child has got cystic fibrosis and that their lungs will be filled with mucus for their whole life and will slowly destroy themselves. And that beautiful baby's not going to make 40 in there and not going to have a good life. Mm. Imagine that. I hate saying it, but I know that cystic fibrosis, people don't mind me saying it so that people understand. It's a death sentence. Yeah, That's what it is. They handed a death sentence. I had someone in my wider sphere. They had a daughter who had cystic fibrosis uh, in a church that I used to be involved in. And that young lady was a gift, but she was taken far too early. Yeah, it's a waste. And the way that it was described to me by Bella when I first met her was, you know, it's like having bricks put on your chest and you can't breathe. And then she would 
show me the pills and it's not like these pills make you feel a little bit better or these pills mm. give you a little bit longer. They wipe it out in a day. It's not like take a month to kick in or anything like this. It's just like, no, I, I took one and I felt better that night. This can't be real. But, you know, but it is. Here's this girl right in front of you telling you. Here's Bob Elliott, who spent his life doing it, one of our most eminent medical researchers, saying, it's real, this is it, it's a miracle. His mm. words, her words, taking it, it's a miracle. And you just can't help be moved by that as a, as a human being. And, you know, with an outrageous price tag on it, it's just so unjust. Mm. And, you know, to see Bob Elliott and her speak about it, you know, when, when people look at the story, you see a young girl with a miracle in front of her saying that she's going to die in three months unless she can get some more money to get some more. Because that's what it was about. Her life was on the line as soon as that ran out. And then you've got Sir Bob Elliott, who's about to die, but is giving her the money to live in one story and saying, actually, others need this, and the drug company and Pharmac and the government need to listen and get this out to people. You know, I've, I've never done a story like it. It was just incredibly powerful. That day, interviewing Bob Elliott in the morning and Bella in the afternoon changed my life. Mm. Um, I'd just never been involved with something like that. I'd never seen two people speak like that. I'd never seen the 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 need to to push something and use my my journalism and I just knew that this had to be funded for for her at at that point and, and for you know the up to 500 other people with cystic fibrosis who I quickly started to meet and they're all they're all over the place and I've shown people others who've taken it and it's changed their life in one day or saved their life and mm. Once the stories started going out and people with cystic fibrosis or their parents would start contacting me, I, you know, and I was just so ashamed that I had didn't even know what it was and that these people and their families were suffering and battling out in New Zealand and no one had been listening to them. Mm. And they would write and say, thank you, not just for the stories about Trikafta, but just like, thank you for mentioning cystic fibrosis on the news. Like, that's what people would say. And I, I brought it up in the debate with Jacinda Ardern and, and Judith Collins, and, 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 you know, they would write to me and they'd go, thank you for mentioning it. Thank you for elevating us. And, you know, I'm just like, you don't need to say, you don't need to say thanks. I'm not the one with a child that's been given a death sentence. You don't need to thank me. We're meant to thank you for everything you do for your child. Mm. We want to thank you for the way that you live with this horrible, horrible affliction. You don't need to thank me. And these emails would come in from people. The more that I did, these emails would come in and people would write to me and say, you know, my son or daughter, they died of cystic fibrosis. And I, I, you know, it doesn't matter for us now, but we don't want other people to go through what we did listening to you know i can i can still remember hearing the cough, the coughing mm. and people would would write in like that other people would write in and say i've got a four-year-old and this thing if we can get it you know their life's going to be different and it just became really really important to me to represent the people with cystic fibrosis in new zealand it became a driving force for me, because I knew that if they were mentioned a few more times and they could see that they were taken seriously in the media, that they would start to rise up and believe that they could be 
equal and treated fairly and get the drug. And, and, and that's happened. This community has risen up on their own. I mean, it's, you know, it's, got, it's got a little bit to do with me, but not much. It's about them. And that's a pretty small role as a, as a journalist, but that's the kind of thing we should be doing. We should be giving them hope that people want to listen to them and that what, what their concerns are are real. And they don't have to be boxed away in different parts of the country struggling. They can come together and they can go to the government and they can fight for what they deserve which is their life is worth the same as everybody else's and they can believe in themselves. And if we can get the drug funded, that's going to be awesome and, and we will. But, you know, maybe my job was done when they started to believe in them, believe in themselves and, and to, to be honest, that's the, probably the biggest success of my career. Yeah, bravo, mate. Bravo. Where is the funding at? Because I see uh, Isaiah's give a little page, and Isaiah's, the story you did on Isaiah is powerful yeah. because where Bella, you don't get to see much of the actual impact. On Isaiah, you see the impact. You see him sucking in the air. You see him yeah. really struggling. And I noticed on his give a little page that he's now got uh, funding for it for the foreseeable future through some uh, committee. Yeah. But where's the funding at with farming? So what's happened is Pharmac have assessed, assessed it. They've called it a paradigm shift, and it's a, a, a drug as a as a high priority. I mean, in their in their bureaucratic kind of language, paradigm shift that means the same as miracle drug. Mm. That's Pharmac's words that it is a paradigm shift, and they need more money to fund it in this budget round. So the government really needs to come to the party and give Pharmac some extra funding in this budget in May. That where they can go back to the drug company Vertex and do a deal and buy it. And when we're talking about doing a deal, you know, at the moment it's going for three hundred to four hundred thousand dollars a year. Say, for instance, a bulk buy deal for four hundred people in this country brings that down by fifty percent. You know, on the back of an envelope, that's bringing the price down to potentially something as low. You know, it's not as low, still something like. $60 million a year for the New Zealand taxpayer. It's still huge, but nobody dies. Mm. People go on and have a normal life, like Bella, who's just about to start at university, should be dead. Mm. She's at university. All of those people that would have lung transplants, which cost 200000 300000 you know, more for a lung transplant, where you might die anyway, by the way, incredibly complicated operation. That's what people need to live with it. You don't need to do those anymore. All of those families that are having to give up work to care for these people and all of that thing, that's all gone. So over and above just the fundamental need to give them their dignity and give them an equal life to you and I is actually, if you look at it, 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 it does make economic sense yes. to give them a pill that keeps them out of hospital for weeks and weeks, I mean, you can use the bed for someone else. That means they don't have to have a lung transplant, one of the most complicated operations you can do with a very low success rate. It means they're functioning members of society and so are their families. Like, it's actually got the economic argument is very, very strong for the government to give Pharmac this extra money that they need. And the drug company also just needs to make it as cheap as possible mm. so that we can do this deal. And that would be great if we see some extra money in the budget for Pharmac for Trikafta and then people are taking it by Christmas. You know, that's magic. Mm. That's magic. And that's possible. 
What I love about what you've just done is there are the likes of you and me who are just like, we'll keep them alive. And any amount of money to keep them alive is worthwhile. But yeah. putting the economic argument on the table, these people will not cost us as much via the health system. They'll become productive citizens paying tax. There are people who look after them who aren't working as much as they could. They'll be paying tax. Yeah. When you consider what it costs to keep somebody in prison, uh, this is a small outlay. Exactly. Tell Andrew Little, the Minister of Health. <laughs> <laughs> well, how can people do that, though? Because I know there was a petition last year when you put these stories out, which was like February yeah, last year. Yeah, there's a, there's really a petition. Early. It's got good numbers on it. With, you know, it's got on over 30,000 people. So it's it's cut through. You know, people know about it. And, and like I said, the people with cystic fibrosis are banging every drum they can. And they've just got to keep doing that to make sure that this government comes through for them and funds this drug. They just have to push hard, and they will, because their lives are on the line. Mm. And in the end, the government needs to be put on notice that lives are in their hands. And actually, I used to work there. They spend money on stuff all the time of this level. They honestly do. Why not change lives forever? Mm. Take cystic fibrosis virtually out of the equation in this country. If I was a politician, which I'm not, thankfully... But if I was, wouldn't you want to be part of that? Mm-hmm. Isn't that a legacy? Isn't that something done for society? Isn't that what you go there to do? And mm-hmm. they are on notice that they can save all of these lives and change all of these lives. What I love about how you've approached this discussion, and it came to the fore a little bit earlier, was that you talked about the work that you've done to kind of put them put them on the table. Uh, and this group that really didn't have a voice. And then they've come together, they've raised their voice, and there's this sense from you and what I heard before of you now being able to fade into the background and they get to shine as champions uh, for the cause. Yeah, I mean, it's the old cliche, but I was really just doing my job. I didn't do that much more beyond the call of duty. You know, it wasn't like there's been this huge sacrifice for me or anything. I, You know, I get paid to do it. You know, it is so awesome when you think of it like that. But, it, you know, it hasn't been me getting up in the middle of the night to give the kids the medicine or it hasn't been me on the by the hospital bed or anything like that. You know, I've literally just done my job, which is really, really cool when you think, when you, when you think about it, that you get mm-hmm. to do something like that. They're the ones that really need to push. And, you know, if I open that door for them a little bit, like I said, it's just an awesome thing and probably probably the best thing that I've done in 22 years of journalism. Mm. This story and pretty much every story we've done on recovering, uh, and this one's going to hold a special place in my heart just because it brought me to tears, but these stories have embodied what I think is the best of New Zealand journalism. But media landscape is changing rapidly all the time. Uh, you've been in it a while now. Where do you see media in New Zealand going? I've seen, obviously, a huge amount of change in journalism. But, actually, I kind of feel like nothing has changed for me. I've sort of always done the same kind of thing. It doesn't matter that the technology and the platforms and the companies and the Facebooks and the global thing are kind of changing. Like, in the end, journalism is really about, oh, yeah, that's a story. I might go try and find out about that, get someone to talk about it, take it, package it up, put it back out. The core of journalism, actually, there's all sorts of pressures, don't get me wrong, but the core of what you do is actually untouched by the change. 
the core of the values that we're talking about, freedom, justice, truth, um, all of these sorts of things, they don't change. You know, they get knocked around and people are critical and there's a lot of white noise and stuff like that. But the, the, the gathering of news and the values of, of journalists, like actually you can't get in and do too much about them because they are, are skills of the head and the heart. And, you know, that gives me a huge amount of uh, hope for where the big picture of journalism will, will go, is that, you know, despite all of this stuff, it doesn't matter where you are in the world, and whether you go to the journalism schools here or overseas or into the newsrooms and find the oldest journal in the newsroom or whatever, you're still going to find, wherever you go, people with these things still doing it. I mean, they're doing it under pressure, but they're still there. And, you know, that to me gives a, 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 a lot of hope for where journalism could can end up. Hey, Paddy, it has been an honour sitting down and chatting, and I really appreciate the time that you took out uh, in a really busy schedule with a lot of important, important stories to tell. I really appreciate you taking the time, so thank you. No, I, I appreciate you for, for listening and for connecting with me. Thank you, Frank. Ngā mihi nui, huge thanks to Patrick for your marvellous mahi and for taking the time to do this kōrero with us. Thanks to Radio New Zealand for hosting the series and thanks to you for listening. If you appreciate the podcast, please give us a much sought after five star rating and share it with someone else who'd like it. And remember to follow to catch future episodes as soon as they're released. At Media Chaplaincy New Zealand, we value our media and demonstrate that by offering free, independent and confidential support for media professionals. So if you work in the industry and want to chat with someone who gets it, head to mediachaplaincy.nz to arrange a catch-up. The coffee's on us. Listener.